everybody. Welcome to Community Roots, a place where we gather in community to talk about mental health so we can travel the journey of life together. I'm Julie Richards. I'm Sarah Wakefield. And today we are off the beaten path with Robin Goebel. Welcome, Robin. Well, hello. Thank you so much for inviting me. So excited to have you. Um, Our paths have recently crossed in attachment world, adoptive parenting world, and Robin has so many great resources. Anyone who's listening right now who wants to tap into some awesome trainings and things for support for adoptive parents, I really want to help connect you to Robin and her work. So feel free to start with maybe giving us a little bit of background on who you are, things you're passionate about, anything you want to share. Yeah. Awesome. Well, that's a broad, broad question. You get to take it where you want to go. <laughs> Fun. <laughs> we'll see if you decided, you know, later we'll circle back around and we'll, I'll ask you if you, if you decided that that was a good, good plan. <laughs> your part or not. <laughs> so yeah, so I'm a, a licensed therapist and have been practicing as a psychotherapist for 15 years. My work has always centered around working with families, raising kids with complex trauma that almost always um, meant I was working with adoptive families, families who had um, adopted kids who had been um, spent some time in foster care who were adopted internationally. Um, So I've, my whole career really has been around supporting those families and the kids and their families. And, and then ultimately I started you know, about five-ish years ago supporting therapists as well, because we uh, are really low on the number of therapists that mm-hmm. we have who feel um, competent and confident and working with families with such complex needs and with such complex histories. I've done a lot of therapists training and support and then and and did this in all in Austin, Texas. So my family and I lived in Austin, Texas for 15 years, which we love until we didn't. And we decided (laughs) about two years ago now, it's amazing it's been so long that Mm. we were ready for just a total lifestyle overhaul. Um wanted to live somewhere that felt quieter and cheaper and had us not spending so much time commuting. Mm-hmm. Um, so we packed up and relocated to outside Grand Rapids, Michigan, which is where I grew up. So most people are like, well, that's a really strange place to pick, but it's um, <laughs> just unusual. But it, it, I grew up here, so I have some roots here, and it just met all our criteria for like slower and cheaper and less complicated, and it's gorgeous outdoor opportunities mm. and activities and experiences. So, so good. Yeah. So I put myself on clinical sabbatical, which means I stopped seeing clients, didn't know how long I was going to do that, and really kept my focus on supporting and teaching and training parents and professionals. And then COVID hit, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I had this full-time business where I was traveling almost 
probably 80% of my income was coming from traveling and speaking at conferences and going to workshops in different parts of the country. And, you know, I had to do a total overhaul of, of that and figure out, oh my gosh, like, what am I, what am I going to do? How am I going to keep supporting my family? And how am I going to keep reaching the families that I want to keep reaching? Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I did what everybody else did and just transitioned to online world. And mm-hmm. that went, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty at first, right? Like none of us knew how that was going to go. Um, and I'm super grateful that it's gone really well. And I've been able to keep doing my work and keep uh, connecting with, with parents and families. And in fact, I've really kind of refocused my energy on parents and families and really putting out um, free and low cost content to support families who are you know, we're struggling in the first place. And then now with the pandemic, you know, everything has just reached a new level of chaos. For sure. Yeah. So that's me in a nutshell. We have. So initially what got you into this field? Well, that's a good question. I, people ask that so often I should come up with a better answer. Um, <laughs> But the answer is not super exciting. I mean, I've always wanted to work with kids who had really big behaviors and really complex histories. I, I wouldn't have labeled it that way, but that's really what I was interested in, like going into graduate school. And then I got a job as a social worker working for an adoption, um, like a fostered adoption agency. And they asked me to write home studies, which had me just like jumping feet first into the adoption world and then the foster foster care to adopt world and I just stayed there I mean I I just I loved it I loved the work I loved the families I love adoptive parents and I really really love working with these kids that other people would call really hard Mm -hmm. yeah so it's not a super exciting story Well, one of the things I'm super fascinated by is the interpersonal neurobiology, Yeah, which is like for anyone who has a little bit of understanding might have heard of Dan Siegel before. Uh Yep. Um, Others might not be familiar. So maybe for those of our audience who really have no idea what I just said and they're thinking, what was that? (laughs) Even though like I'm totally psyched about all of that, um, Uh see what you can do in helping our listeners understand, translate what I just said for them. (laughs) You bet. So interpersonal neurobiology is sometimes shortened to the acronym IPNB, which I think is kind of silly because it's not a super easy acronym. It's not really easier than interpersonal neurobiology, but uh, interpersonal neurobiology is bringing together the study of the brain and the neurobiology piece with the relational and social world, the relational and social brain. Um, that our brain does all sorts of important things for us. It keeps our heart beating, you know, it does all these physical things for us, but our brain is also behind all of our, you know, our entire relational and social uh, experiences as well. And so Dan Siegel did develop this new field of interpersonal neurobiology, really focusing on the way like the mind and the body and relationships come together and how the 
the brain is a, is a relational organ, meaning it develops inside relationship and remains healthy inside relationship and heals absolutely relationship yeah absolutely it gets injured there and it heals and recovers there so it's it makes for quite a dicey thing for a person trying to navigate relationships because it's like this is what could hurt me but this is also what has the potential to heal could we just um uh backtrack just just slightly yeah um this idea that the brain develops inside relationships so what you're saying is the brain actually creates like synapses or it continues yes. to grow within within relationships but being outside of a relationship it then stagnates well if we think about when the brain is first developing right when a baby kind of is in utero and then first into the world is those first few years of life is when the brain is just on fire with developing new, especially new synaptic connections and connections between the neurons. So it, the re, it is very clear that the brain is the developing inside a relationship between an infant and the infant's caregiver. And when we look at the brains of infants who didn't have the opportunity to have a, you know, close, caring, co-regulated, healthy relationship with a caregiver absolutely has impacted their brain development. Absolutely. Does that mean brains, you know, I mean, we're, we're social relational beings. I mean, we are designed to be in relationship. Our brains are constantly scanning the environment to determine the availability of safe, connected relationship. We're, we're always on the lookout for it. We're preferencing it. We want to experience safe and connected relationship. And when we're little and our brain is really developing, we want to experience that relationship with somebody else. And then eventually uh, the brain, eventually because of these connected relationships with other people, we um, develop the opportunity to connect in relationship with ourselves. So as we move into like adolescence and young adulthood and, and adulthood, right, we've had the opportunity to develop this, you know, if we've had enough relation connection with another relational, we've had enough relational experiences, we've developed a a strong sense of self and then have a relationship with ourself as well. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. That we really need those mirroring um, safe attachment figures that can help us get to know who we are. Yes. Because so often I find, and I've shared this before on our podcast, but I, I work with people in every age across the lifespan and there will be people in their fifties and sixties and older that are like, I don't know who I am. And what that really tells us, I think very significantly is that there wasn't someone to mirror to me who I am or to be curious or to take an interest or be delighted to know me. Um, And so that ends up being an unmet need and then they don't really know what their sense of self is. Yeah. Yeah. Does that give you some, 
clarity, Sarah? Yes, it does. Cool. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, I found Dan Siegel's work a long time ago. Thank goodness. At the beginning of my career, I found his work and it just, yeah. And so many people say the same thing. Like you find this work and you start learning about the relational brain and, and about attachment and all this stuff. And it's like a breath of relief. Like, Oh, okay. I finally have found this place that I want to be and interpersonal neurobiology. And then the kind of broader field of the relational neurosciences also also has at its core, this belief that um, humans are always like our nervous systems, our, our systems as being a human are always working towards coherence and regulation and organization. We're always trying to find our way to um, this place of health and wellness and, and connection. And I find that to be really inspiring. It's a much, I think, easier approach to mental health and wellness than a more um, sickness or pathologizing mm-hmm. approach. It feels very hopeful and very inspiring, it really helps me understand what could otherwise be labeled as, you know, really difficult behaviors. Mm-hmm. Um, because that's what presents, right? I mean, that's right. what we see so blatantly in front of us is, um, lots of strong feelings or dysregulation or, um, behavioral things that I think can really trigger yeah. the parents as well. Yeah. So all of their stuff is getting stirred up. And it's kind of an emotional storm and trying to find a way through that. Absolutely. Well, I mean, even when, even if the relationships aren't, or the, the behaviors aren't quote unquote, like a trigger kids, people with histories of complex trauma often have very, very, very different, like literally difficult behaviors. <laughs> They're mm-hmm. behaviors that are pushing people out of being in relationship with them. They're behaviors that can feel dangerous. Right. And so to be able to see those behaviors as attempts at being okay in that exact moment and really getting underneath at what's going on, right? Like if I believe my theory, which is that we're always looking to be in relationship, we're always designed to be in connection, we want to move into connected relationship with each other. Then when I put that next to behaviors that are keeping people out of wanting to be in relationship with them, my next step is curiosity, right? Like, huh, that's weird. That doesn't really make sense. We're designed to be in relationship with each other. We're designed to be in connection with each other. Oppositional behavior doesn't really encourage that. You know, violent behavior doesn't really encourage that. So what, I wonder why, I wonder what's going on, which allows me to stay in the space of, of, of curiosity mm-hmm. to look for like what's going on where is the unmet need that this individual um, is seeking and can we meet that need so that then their system can do exactly what it's designed to do which is to you know regulate and and ultimately move into being in connection with themselves and with other people mm-hmm. For sure. That curiosity, I think, keeps us in that open stance, the willingness to to be in that space together and to hold that with compassion. 
Yeah. Curiosity yeah. and compassion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which isn't easy by any means. It's not like this right. is, you know, the always this very easy thing to do is be with people with really hard behaviors and um, stay in this open, curious place. It's certainly mm-hmm. not an easy thing to do, but for me, it's easier if I stay connected to, oh, connections, a biological imperative. We're always seeking connection, yet this person is actively rejecting connection. So, huh, what should we do about that? Mm-hmm. Um, and that has informed for sure everything about my professional work, but it's also just changed me as a person, as a human, like living a, in the reg- in the world, you know, in all my other relationships and my family and my, my own parenting. Um, and honestly, I think it's really helped me get through the last eight or nine months now of a really, really difficult season of life mm-hmm. um, and staying really anchored into the theory behind interpersonal neurobiology has been um, really grounding for me. Mm-hmm. Well, and even though things can be so complex and our humanity, we get tired, we get um, burned out, we get conflicted, we have all the stressors and things that cloud everything up. So sometimes having something of a path to say, I'm going to stay open, I'm going to stay curious, I'm going to stay compassionate, I'm going to focus on relationship, right? That gives some clarity, I think, to what we need to wrap our minds around and our efforts around. Yep. And one of my kind of favorite things about really, especially working with this particular population and staying super grounded in relational neurosciences and interpersonal neurobiology is that it also becomes almost this sneaky way into um, adults and parents beginning to have more compassion towards themselves. Right? Because mm-hmm. we spend all this energy looking at our kids' relationship or our kids' behaviors and trying to reframe their behaviors and seeing their behaviors as unmet needs and, and through the lens of regulation and felt safety, right? And they and, and parents get really good at working so hard to see their kids through this lens that ultimately they almost have no choice but to apply it back towards themselves as well. Mm-hmm. And a lot of parents don't go out into the world seeking that as their ultimate goal, right? Like they aren't Googling, how can I have more compassion for myself? (laughs) Some some of them are, but typically really stressed out parents with kids with really big behaviors are Googling, how do I fix this behavior problem? Right? Mm -hmm. So it's this beautiful way of um, bringing both to parents and really supporting them with this thing that ultimately they didn't even know that they needed, but change changes things more than anything else, which mm-hmm. is applying these beliefs back to themselves and mm-hmm. their behaviors and having compassion for themselves when, when they are burned out or when they can't take it anymore, or when they're, they've lost it with their kid, right. That, um, that we're all just human. We're all just human doing the very best that we can. So often you hear parents asking for, I need, I had this just last week. I need more strategies. Yeah. I need better strategies. I have to have a strategy. Um, how do you respond to that, Robin? So um, it 
it depends a tiny little bit, but what I have to do, just like when I'm working with kids, is I have to have a moment of assessment of how dysregulated is this person? What are they really asking for when they're asking for a strategy? Um, oftentimes, the I need a strategy question is a signal to me that this is a person who has like kind of crossed their own threshold of what mm -hmm. they can tolerate. Mm -hmm. And now they're in a state of dysregulation. And there is a way of attempting to um, bring some organization to their own internal chaos, their internal overwhelm by saying, please give me a strategy. Just tell me what to do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the first thing I want to do is connect to what their experience is, you know, offer some opportunity to let them know, hey, I get it. I get that you are this stressed out. I get that things are this bad right now. I get that it feels like if we don't get a strategy to fix this problem, something else really bad is going to happen, right? Like I, I work super hard to attune, it's like what's underneath asking for the strategy, right? And I might even ask, like, does it feel like I get it? Do you feel like I really understand how hard things are for you? If it doesn't, tell me, I really want to know, right? So really want to connect in a tune and offer co-regulation to that person who's asking that question. Um, and then once we're reconnected and we've got a little more regulation on board, then I can, you know, work together with a parent to figure out, like, do you really need a strategy? Sometimes people really do need a strategy. Like they are out of ideas and they are like, nobody prepared me for this parenting situation and I have no idea what to do, you know? And so then I'll, we'll talk about that. We'll talk about like, well, what are some of our options? What about this? Does this feel possible? Does this feel possible? Have you, you know, we can totally start to evaluate possible strategies. Um, other times once, you know, parents, get more regulated and they feel connected and seen, oftentimes they'll move into one, maybe acknowledging that, oh yeah, there isn't a strategy that's gonna fix this after all. I just really wish that there was. Mm -hmm. Or they realize that they know the strategy already and they can answer their own question. Um, so it, it just depends, but yeah, usually that's the, I'm stressed out and dysregulated and don't know what to do. And I need you to help me kind mm -hmm, of a question. For sure. Yeah. And then some parents really are, you know, I want a strategy. I want to know the behavior management technique to change this behavior and believe that I have that capacity, you know, that ability to do that. And so then often what I'll say is, um, well, first of all, I would really love that. Like life would be so much easier if all of these challenges could be solved by a strategy. I would totally tell you what it was if, if that was true. But almost always the truth is, is that if there was a strategy that was going to solve this particular behavior, you would have found it before you even found me, right? Because you're a good parent and you've been doing reading and you've been researching um, so I get how badly you want a strategy and also if a behavior, I don't, I don't know that a behavior strategy is going to solve this problem. If it was, I think we probably would have solved it by now. Sometimes I think of behaviors as kind of being that tip of the iceberg, that mm -hmm. it's what we see, it's mm -hmm. communication, mm -hmm. it's data, it's information for us to 
to take in so that we can um, be better informed on, like you said, what are the needs that aren't getting right. met? How can right. I connect in with this? I think sometimes like working with adolescents, they can be like porcupines to try to mm-hmm. warm up to <laughs> or... um which I love adolescents. I have four of them when you consider that adolescents span, you know, the adolescent brain that doesn't finish developing until right. uh, 25 or sometimes they even say 30. But um, I, I totally love the, um, the passion and the growth and the autonomy that they're developing and they're figuring yep. out who they are as a person. Uh-huh. I think what that sometimes stirs up for parents that I've worked with is kind of feeling disrespected or um, threatened by that in some way as yeah. if the the thing that has been like elevated to importance is compliance, yeah. obedience, respect. Right. It's like this whole paradigm shift to say, what if like the the core is like mental health? and awareness and healing and growth that like turns everything all on a whole different lens. Right. Well, yeah, that brings me back to my, my kind of like key phrase is regulated connected kids who feel safe and know what to do behave well. And I believe that about all humans, like, and by, you know, we can, we can talk about our definition of, um, behave well, but I am a lot more interested in helping my own. I have a 14 year old who could certainly be prickly and porcupiney and disrespectful, right? As his brain is going through all sorts of amazing changes that are leaving him a little more, you know, dysregulated than usual. Not to mention everything else, right? Starting high school, starting high school in a pandemic and all these kinds of things. And absolutely, sometimes I also want to you know, prioritize you know, obedience and, you know, don't talk to me that way. And, and those types of experiences with my kid, but if I'm regulated, I can stay pretty anchored into that curious place of like, what's going on with him, right? Like the human brain is designed to be in relationship and in con- a connected relationship. So he's behaving in a way that is not inviting me to be at any kind of connected relationship with him. What's up with that? Like what's, what's going on here? Um, and I think being with him with that belief has definitely impacted our relationship in a really positive way, right? Cause I think he experiences this feeling really seen and he he gets to experience me being anchored into the truth that he is an awesome, awesome kid who sometimes gets super dysregulated and acts like a jerk. Right. And so, but he doesn't, it doesn't change his character. It doesn't change who I believe he is, right. That I can stay really firmly grounded and something isn't right here. And that doesn't always change his behavior, right? Like he's his own person. I'm not on control of his behavior, but it changes the way I respond to his behavior. It changes 
the space I can make available to it, it changes how I offer boundaries instead of like threats and punishments and consequences. And ultimately then that creates an experience in our, in our home, I think, hopefully that, in, you know, provides lots of felt safety, lots of connection, lots of relational engagement and allows his brain to like reorient back to what's true about him, that he's a really awesome kid. And when he's regulated, connected and feeling safe, he behaves in ways that invite relationship. Um, Would you um, talk a little bit about what that does to the brain when you offer him this anchored space, when you come to him from your own anchored space, instead of um, combating his behavior? And, you know, does that affect the brain? Does that cause if you if you combat that behavior and butt heads in a way that doesn't um, show him that doesn't try to connect with him, does that do something to the brain as well? Well, I think it does a couple things. One, so I, I nervous our nervous systems and our states of regulation are really contagious. Like we're energetic beings, and um, when I'm with somebody who's dysregulated, I shift into being dysregulated and vice versa, right? So because I theoretically have the more like developmentally mature regulated brain, it becomes my responsibility when he comes, you know, when he enters into a relationship with dysregulation, that it becomes my responsibility to um, First, like my brain does the thing that it's supposed to do, which it, it gets dysregulated too, because that's how our brains work. When we're with somebody dysregulated, we get dysregulated. But if I stay dysregulated, how is his brain ever going to shift? How is he ever going to move back into regulation? I can't create an experience of felt safety for him if I'm you know, joining his opposition or if I'm joining his control or if I'm yelling or screaming at him. These are normal parent behaviors and I have compassion for myself when I slip into those patterns. Um, but I try really hard to, to not, you know, I try really hard to stay as um, like, regulated, which doesn't necessarily mean calm, but just regulated as possible other, because I want his nervous system to catch mine, right? If I want him to be, get, you know, move into regulation, I have to be offering that for him. So from a brain perspective, it absolutely impacts our, like our neurobiology and our neurochemistry and all that kind of stuff like to, to be with somebody who's regulated. The other thing that it does is like we talked about at the very beginning that Julie talked about, which is um, how we need, we need to see ourselves through the eyes of somebody else to create a narrative about who we are. So I really believe like we're all born into this world as like perfectly wonderful, amazing, imperfect creatures who are full of infinite worth. And I think that's true about everybody, but we only come to know that it's true about ourselves 
because somebody looks at us with that reflection. Somebody gives us the reflected truth, right? Like a mirror that's, you're amazing. So the mirror doesn't make it true. The mirror helps us know that it's true, right? And so if part of how, what I'm giving my kid when I'm able to stay regulated is a mirror of, um, this behavior is not acceptable. <laughs> we don't like engage in relationships in this way in our family. And I know that you behaving this way isn't a representation of your character. It's not a reflection of you being a bad kid. It's a reflection of the state of your nervous system right now. And that's a way different way of being with somebody and responding to somebody, right? When you can stay super anchored in that, you know, that then he gets to hold on to, again, like I'm a really cool, awesome, amazing kid who sometimes acts really badly. And it's not because I'm a bad kid. It's because, you know, all these other things are going on or because I'm a teenager and my hormones are going insane or my neurons are being pruned at a rapid pace in my brain. And that is making me more dysregulated or there's all these other causes for the behavior, but it's not because he's a bad kid. It kind of reminds me of a anecdote from a friend whose child, um, I think they'd had, they'd had too many cookies and they were just running around in circles and the parent asks the kid, like, what are you doing? And they're like, I don't know. Ah! <laughs> exactly. I don't know. <laughs> and my son will say that sometimes too. I mean, he really, there have been, you know, he knows so much about the brain. His mom's a therapist. Well, you know, poor kid. And every now and again, he will say to me, like, I don't know why I'm acting this way, but I can't make it stop. <laughs> I know, buddy. I get it. I get it. We're going to figure it out together. That is some very strong self-awareness. <laughs> for way. sure. Like that's far, that feels beyond me sometimes. <laughs> it's beyond me sometimes too, but not always. Sometimes I can say it too, but, but that is my goal that, that he has that level of self-awareness and imagine being able to say that to a partner someday. I mean, well, and I'm thinking too of the parents who haven't had that poured into them and they're trying to figure out much later in life while they're in the midst of all the tangled up storms that parenting brings where do they go for that mirroring aside from therapy because that is a definite place where you can work on that but like certain I mean for some people it is a a spousal relationship or healthy attachment relationships. But what I find with a lot of people who are hurting is that there's a real lack of those too. Like even their marriage might be a place of struggle or it's a single parent or divorce background or something like, I think, you know, we're lacking mirrors. We're oh, lacking yes. people who will invest and speak life over us and care for us and be attentive and attuned. I think that's a real void in our society. But what would you say to to those that are noticing that, that are aware that, wow, this is something I never got. I'm trying to give something right now that I never got. Yeah. 
I love this question. And I, I think you're right that like the, in the ideal world, it's, you know, let's head to therapy because that's an opportunity for a relational experience that isn't super mutual, right? Like it's all about the, the client. You just get poured and poured and poured into without an expectation of giving back. And there's something so like rich and healing and nurturing and wonderful about that. And it is, it's more obvious to me than it's ever been before that therapy is exceptionally inaccessible um, for a lot of reasons, but it's just not something that so many really struggling people have access to. And, and you're right, people who really need these mirrors are oftentimes, you know, unfortunately finding themselves in relationships where they're not getting the mirroring that they really deserve. Like, like that's true. Mirroring, that's true, right? And so we do have to get kind of creative about how we get that. And I've uh, I think something I've learned in the pandemic actually is like face-to-face -face, like experiences are uh, probably the best and there is a lot of goodness that can come in um, virtual connections and online support groups and um you know, communities of people who get it. I think that's really important if possible is finding a community of parents who, especially parenting kids with trauma histories, it's a parenting journey like no other. Um, and to be with people, it's one of my favorite things about going to adoptive parent conferences is that um, these parents, I watch it happening when I'm up on stage, like these parents sit down at these at tables with other people and there's just this instant understanding. Like if you're here for this topic, you get it. I don't have to explain myself. I don't have to justify anything. I don't have to wonder about like, will you understand how hard things, you know, there's like this unspoken, these people understand how hard things are and finding those kind of communities. And again, I think, uh, and this has been something I've been really, and I have a couple ideas as we move into the beginning of 2021. Um, I have some hopes about how I can contribute to that in a way that is far more accessible and nurturing than uh, like once a week therapy, finding community, finding people, um, who understand and connecting with people who like believe in your goodness. What, um, as we are reflecting a little bit about adoption, mm -hmm. what would you say that you have learned in adoption world from your own experience, from the stories you have heard from adoptees, what you've heard from adoptive parents? If you were to help be a voice in that, um, in that world, what would be something that would be a takeaway that you have found to be true? It's interesting. I think it, adoption has taught 
me things I had no idea it could. Um, I think that adopt because of adoption starting with such tremendous loss. What adoption has taught me is that we have to figure out a way to hold two completely different experiences at the same time. And I don't, I haven't really come into contact with an experience that holds your feet to the fire as much as adoption does because to navigate this experience of, you know, in order for adoption to happen, a family has to have been annihilated. Yet there's this other experience that's true for so many adopted kids and adopted families is that there's goodness, lots and lots of wonderful goodness. It's not true for every adopted kid, but, you know, there's many, many wonderful, fantastic, amazing adoptive families and how do we hold those two things together that the the amazingness of this only exists because like the biggest tragedy imaginable happened first and the more i understand the brain and the more i understand like mental health and mental wellness is that is that the ability to navigate and to like keep two feet in these seemingly completely contradictory opposites. That's where it's at. Like that's mental health, that's mental wellness. And man does being like involved in adoption, like really force you to figure out how, how to do that and how to talk about what seems unspeakable. How do we create a narrative and give a story to something that seems really hard to give a story to? And these are true for all humans. Like this is a core part of being human, trying to hold two contradictory experiences at once, you know, giving voice to and giving a narrative to what feels unspeakable, right? Like even my son saying, I don't, I feel terrible right now. I don't know why I'm acting this way, but I can't make it stop. That's giving words to what for so many people would be unspeakable, right? So like adoption has just like, and being so connected to the adoptive community and really, you know, making it my life's work to serve the adoptive community. Those are like, those are my major takeaways in this moment if you ask me tomorrow i'd probably come up with something different <laughs> there's more there's but, always more but today uh, that's feeling yeah. just so today in the middle of a pandemic right in the middle of a major well, and what what words of wisdom in a nutshell obviously as we're winding down um, our time together but what words of wisdom or encouragement do you have for adoptive parents specifically who are overwhelmed tired discouraged, needing a breath of life or a sense of they're not alone. Um, what would you say to those who are listening today? Well, that they're, they may be alone, but their experience is unfortunately not unique that so many families are, are always struggling. And so many families, especially now, um, are struggling and, you know, I think there's the space to decide 
what do I do today? Today, do I give myself like a ton of self-compassion and then figure out how to like keep on keeping on? Like I got to keep putting one foot in front of the other because what other choice do we have? Uh, you know, I think there's a time and a place for that approach to life. And then I think there's a time and a place for a very real, like acknowledging everything that's happening around me is terrible. And I'm not sure if I can make it like one more day or one more moment and just allowing yourself to um, connect to that truth that it feels that bad. And I think there's a place to do both. Right. Is sometimes it's 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 we're ready to go. Okay, one foot from the other. I gotta keep going. I gotta keep going. I gotta keep going. And I think some days, you know, just sitting with the acknowledgement that like this is the hardest thing that's ever happened in my life, um, and it at times it feels impossibly hard, and really just being with the being with that and offering ourselves compassion through that is mm -hmm. how important it is, I think, to just validate the reality of where we are yep. and to be able to hold space with that for each other, but also even for ourselves. Yes. And being able to uh, practice life is so much practicing of I'm feeling my feelings right now. Yep. And just like the weather passes and changes, my feelings will. Yep. Um, unfold and change. And yep. right now I'm in the thick of it and I'm going to get through however many more hours in this day and call it another day that I made it through. And there's hope in that. There's yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's definitely a shift that happens for people um, when like you even said a moment ago of one minute you would answer it one way, another minute you'd answer it another way. Um, yep. Our perspectives change, our insight changes. All of that is thankfully not stagnant, even if right. it sometimes feels that feels way. Feels like it. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. I agree. Any other closing thoughts? Um, I do have one just really fast. This discussion um, also, like I just listened to Julie give her unpack that on adoption trauma. Um, and I think it's really important too to not underestimate the age of the child that uh, the trauma of adoption, that loss, that sense of, you know, your family's been annihilated. It ties in with the brain. Julie made this point um, that the brain knows when that bond has been severed between yeah. the mother and the child, the family and the child. And yeah. so if you're a family facing adoption trauma and you're wondering, like, you've had you've adopted this child since they were a baby, since right. they were months old. And why is this coming up now? Like that is still a very real loss that yeah. needs to be um to be addressed, to be shared, to be understood. Um, and I don't know why, but that was just really impressed upon me um, for our listeners, because I know a lot of people who do adopt young children and who haven't gone through any sort of therapy process with them um, surrounding that loss. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we like to close our episodes with something of gratitude or affirmation just to kind of live out their practices ourselves for mental health. So um, anything that you want to share that you're particularly grateful for or an affirmation that you would like to speak to today? Well, in this moment, I feel extremely gratitude for y'all 
And for people who, you know, spend their free time, literally their free time, like creating resources and creating experiences that are accessible and, you know, available to the people who need them. It's a total labor of love and it, it makes a difference. It makes a huge difference. So I, that's my gratitude. <laughs> Uh, mine's more of an affirmation, but um, Robin, you said early on in this episode that um, demonstration or difficult behaviors are demonstrations of attempts to be okay with the situation. And I think that is so brave. I think that is so very brave to acknowledge, to, to say, I am trying to show up in this situation. I'm trying to be okay with it. And my behavior, like, I just, I don't know what's going on. And, but yet you're still attempting to be in that moment to, to be in, to to figure out how to be okay in that situation. And that just seems really brave to me. So that's kind of my affirmation is that you're being brave. (laughs) Yes. Well, my gratitude is for sure, Robin, that you're willing to spend time with us today. And two, for just that sense of we're not alone, that there are people out there that care and that are doing the healing work and reaching out. I think it's needed now more than ever. Um, Super thankful for Sarah being with me here today and sunshine. And I love finding beauty in nature as something as a very grounding thing, looking up at the sky, seeing the changes of uh, cloud patterns and seasons changing. All of that is very um, grounding and beautiful. I find a lot of gratitude in that, too. Um, how do people find you, Robin? You've got all the resources that are amazing. Could you let our listeners know how to um, tap into some of the great things that you have to offer? Yeah. So the two places that people will want to go to get all the goodness is um, <laughs> Robin, not all the goodness, but the goodness I have available lots and lots for the of world goodness. <laughs> is um, robingobel.com slash blog um, is where you'll see all of my writings. And then robingobel.com backslash free resources is um, overflowing with right now. I think they're all videos, all video resources, um, that are all free. So awesome. And we can link those in our show notes too, for everybody. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Robin. You're so welcome. Thank you too. And thank you listeners for being with us. Um, We look forward to unpacking more layers of adoption and healing and growth. um, And we are so thankful to share the journey with you. So thanks, everybody. 